Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we sit down and talk with marketing thought leaders and experts on the issues and topics of interest to marketers and business leaders everywhere. Today, I'm sitting down with Global President of Business Intelligent at Group M, Brian Wiesner. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me, Darren. Well, welcome to Sydney. What brings you uh, to Sydney on this trip, and why did you bring the weather from the northwest of the USA? You know, that's why I'm here. I thought you would uh, appreciate a bit of wet weather that we experience and allows us to be so creative, make our wonderful coffees and beers and wines and all that stuff. Not that you have that in Australia. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's lovely here. No, but what does bring you to yeah, the, Sydney? Because it is a long way across the pond that is called the Pacific Ocean. It was it? a little bit of a trip. Um, the Double NA had their annual conference, and that was the occasion of me coming here. And it's you know it's really important to actually get out to see some of the local regions or markets and understand what the key issues are. It makes the work I do deeper when I can. Um, with that said, we don't travel. I don't travel that much, so um, we're certainly selective about which events I come to and this seemed like an important one to come visit and therefore I do. Now it must be interesting from the point of view of seeing the numbers that are coming from around the world on the measures of our economy because there's definitely mixed messages uh, even in Australia you know we've got consumer index down, uh, confidence is down, retail's down, construction's down, mining's up uh, unemployment is sort of static. Uh, the dollar has been falling. These are all different economic measures. It's very hard to get a sense of what's happening, except everyone seems to be saying the R word is spending. What's your read? Not just from an Australian point of view, but yeah. at the broader point of view. At a global level, uh, the best characterization of the economy around the world is fragile. It's really, really fragile. By most standards, as you said, like there's all these signs that say things are actually pretty good. But all the tensions that are going on between trade wars, between what Brexit means for the UK, Europe, and the rest of the world, um, trade wars with other countries that don't involve the US, (laughs) Mm. um, and the very fact that, you know, the economic cycle is so long into a, a growth cycle that there's an inevitability of a downturn. The fact is that there's all these factors that are going to weigh on the economy at some point, and there's naturally a reset that will occur. Mm-hmm. And that's just normal part of an economic cycle. So in that sense, it's nothing to be over So it's just part of the boom and bust that happens naturally in economies. Well, so far, that's probably true. I mean, you, you, it can be healthy to have a, a slight downturn, it's a correction, I think they a correction, call it. correction, yes. <laughs> That's why they call it a correction. It's like there's an eraser or something. It's like, let's do it over, which is very different than when you have something like the global financial crisis, which Australia may not be aware of, but it happened everywhere else. Well, Australia avoided a recession. Yes. See, that's why it's called a global financial crisis, whereas in the rest of the world, it's called a recession because yeah. economies actually went into recession. Yeah, it was desperate times in, in many countries, uh, certainly over that, that period of time. So um, you don't want that. Um, that obviously is uh, really disruptive, to say the least. But um, no, it, I mean, the global economy is fragile. 
And I think it's uh, safe to say one should assume that deceleration at minimum is occurring. And we can call that a recession if it meets certain technical yeah. uh, criteria. Or two quarters of negative growth. Yeah, but you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I think that when we're talking about economic factors and we're trying to compare them to the, the data points that most marketers should care about, we really need to look at what I would call nominal year-over-year growth trends, mm-hmm. not sequential real growth trends, right? That's inflation adjusted. And it's not, it captures some seasonality in those numbers. You want to be able to compare uh, an apples to apples uh, number, if you could. So what's your growth as a business relative to the economy on that nominal, either GDP or other metric? And when I look at it that way, we usually see deceleration rather than decline when we go into a downturn, right? Most downturns, like you could say negative sequential real growth or real decline, but that's not really what's happening. It's deceleration. So the pace of the economy yeah, it's just dis- is slowing. Yes, but still growing. Okay, so that's interesting because we have seen over the last six months, decision-making is becoming longer. Yep. That it, There's still a decision at the end of it. It just takes people a lot longer to make decisions around spending money, which is part of deceleration and that's true and that's uh bad for the companies who are slow in making decisions and good for the companies who can make decisions faster now i wonder because in many ways all of these economic measures indices are actually capturing behavior Mm -hmm. which is underpinned by attitude isn't it because when we see things like consumer confidence business confidence these are actually the leading edge of what we often see as the hard numbers of of behavior happening it's true we we can talk ourselves into a recession absolutely and we can talk ourselves into growth Um, these are absolutely true things um that said uh if i mean sometimes economies become overextended and they're necessary a bubble yeah, a bubble, truly. Yeah. And so forget about talking ourselves into a recession. These things are actually necessary to bring an economy back to a, a foundation from which future growth can occur. So, Brian, you presented at the AANA quite interesting uh, numbers around advertising spend. You know, Now, back at the global financial crisis, the global recession, we saw cuts of 12%, mm. I think it was in the US, and I think on average it's sort of 9% of uh, media expenditure. But you're actually, uh, you're seeing in the numbers that a small group of companies are actually significantly contributing to growth. Yeah, and this is the thing I think you appreciate there are eight companies that we can identify who spent last year 26 billion US dollars so if we take Facebook Amazon Netflix Google eBay IC Uber booking.com mm-hmm. I think that's the eight uh, 26 billion dollars of, of paid advertising last year if we added Tencent JD and Alibaba mm-hmm. in China that's another 10 billion dollars Again, this is them buying advertising, not selling, buying. That's right, yeah. And then it's not hard to find a couple of dozen others who are spending hundreds of millions of dollars each. Very quickly, you get to a few dozen companies that are probably accounting for 10% of all advertising. And importantly, probably 40, 50% of the growth. Mm. And so to the extent that these companies 
have firstly displaced companies which came before them in many instances. So Expedia replaces a Thomas Cook or pick your travel agent of choice. Um, there's an element of displacement that occurs, but as these companies mature, their growth rates will eventually mirror the economy's growth mm. rather than the 25 or 30% growth rates that we've been seeing in terms of their expenditures. So the very fact that they must necessarily eventually decelerate their own spending will contribute to global deceleration. The thing that I took out of that as well is it's so interesting the number of uh, CEOs, for instance, that will often challenge their CMO with stories about startups mm. and technology companies not relying on advertising, that they get growth from having great products and, and people wanting the technology. Yeah, no, they're all spending so on advertising. <laughs> well, and isn't it interesting how all of them get to a certain point, usually post-IPO, where suddenly they're responsible for delivering uh, real revenue yeah. and head towards, God forbid, profit, that suddenly the advertising strategy becomes an essential part of their marketing strategy. It is possible to build a business with very limited advertising, for sure. There's examples of this occurring. And certainly uh, a fantastic, unique product paired with word of mouth can absolutely get you there. It's just pretty rare. Uh, the vast majority of the direct-to-consumer businesses that have emerged over time, you know, when we say that they've growth-hacked, what we mean is that they've found audience segments to target narrowly on Facebook, Google, uh, or various related properties. And, uh, yeah, they're spending huge shares of their revenues on advertising. Nothing wrong with that. But to be clear, that's been a core part of the strategy. I should say, just because that's how other businesses have grown, that doesn't mean it's not possible. Um, you could choose to be a marketer who spends nothing on advertising and say, all right, tie two hands behind your back, now win this race. And absolutely agree, except that it does explode the myth that yeah. these companies have actually grown exclusively without advertising. I don't think because, that's true. Yeah, yeah, I think but, they've, they've all relied on advertising to some degree. Well, in some ways, though, it is part of the mythology that we've seen grow up around startups right yeah. up to the IPO stage because they usually don't invest a lot of their investors' yeah. money. Once they get to IPO and they're you know, on a, a, a stock market, there's a yeah. share price that can be monitored. The value is then, yeah. you know, we get the quarterly, uh, the quarterly reporting. Well, the great thing about this, you know, the, from my vantage point, um, with uh, uh, the recent boom in, in, in IPOs that we've seen is that um, a lot of these companies have had to disclose uh, financial statements. Mm. And uh, there are some who spent very little on advertising. Pinterest, I think, spent very little. Um, they're now, I think, starting to spend. Uh, but, you know, a Square or um, certainly Peloton, um, Chewy. I mean, these are large advertisers now. Mm. And uh, most of them, you know, again, once they get past the first couple of years, they, they absolutely invested in advertising. So one of the issues for marketers, and we've heard it quite a bit around the change of the CMO in a, in a few big companies to the chief growth officer, and also flowing on then to agencies, is this focus on is it brand building or is it short-term uh, sales and revenue or is it both? What are you seeing from a you know an investor point of view, or a, a, you know the measures that we have around success? 
what is what is that conundrum that seems to appear for marketers? Do I do short-term sales? Do I build long-term growth? Mm. Or, you know, what? It's all possible. I mean, I think different marketers are making different choices. I think that, you know, it's, it's certainly been um, written about widely enough, but the consequences of 3G uh, dominating, if you will, the trends in the packaged goods industry certainly concentrated minds around more short-term oriented metrics until very recently. Um, That's 3G Capital. Yeah, 3G Capital, exactly, which which controlled Kraft Heinz uh, and among other companies. And, um, you know, that's not to say that they weren't, I mean, they also controlled Burger King, which I think by most standards was doing pretty stellar advertising. Mm. Um, So it's not to say that they weren't uh, investing in creativity and brand. It's just... I think that uh, certainly it, the spirit behind what they were doing was causing fear in the hearts and minds of packaged goods companies around the world, fearing a takeover from someone else, if not 3G. And then that, in turn, led to more short-term thinking and short-term budgeting and short-term everything. We're kind of past that as of this moment. Um, it's not to say there's not short-term thinking, but whether the top of a company is taking a long time horizon in the choices they're making, I think that influences these uh, very questions you're, you're calling mm-hmm. out. Um, you know, I've characterized that uh, for all the knocking that investors often take for being very short-term oriented, they only have a short-term time horizon when they don't trust management. Mm-hmm. And if a management team, by management team, I mean the CEO, CFO, can't persuade investors that they should be trusted, they're not going to get a very long leash. Mm. And then that's going to play itself out in shorter-term goals. Well, we saw that with, uh, and and I know this is almost a cliche, but Jeff Bezos, who would sit there and say to his investors, you are not getting any returns because I'm going to invest everything back into growing this business. So this is a long-term capital growth game. Yep market domination game rather than a short-term return on investment. And I think they built a brand unintentionally from that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because you go read uh, the, was it the Everything Store by Brad Stone uh, or any sort of the histories mm-hmm. of, of, uh, of Amazon, Amazon. Uh, there was almost a disparaging view towards marketing and advertising. Um, I think over time they came to appreciate its importance and role uh, uh, that that uh, it plays for Amazon and its now multiple brands. But the very fact that they just kept building their business and focusing on what they were focusing on and they kept a long-term orientation in all of their business, all of the product as a consumer experience dip, uh, produced a brand that all means something that we we know it when we see it now. Um to go from you know what's seen as a technology brand like Amazon to a more traditional brand, Unilever is an interesting um, uh, entity because it had a long-term CEO leadership that had long-term vision and largely protected from what you read the business from the short term. You know they obviously met the requirements, but took a much longer-term um, view of building brands and building their market share in different markets. Then compare that to, say, a P&G, where we've seen and read a lot about, you know, 
cost-cutting, moving away from traditional uh, advertising expenditure and putting more into driving revenue. In fact, I think they famously said they've cut $300 million in the US and driven sales at the same time. It's an interesting juxtaposition because they're two companies that are long established and yet quite similar in the category. Uh, yeah, I don't know. From my observation, just um, again looking mostly externally, uh, I, I, I think you have to look at it at the brand level, and then it's they they both have made similar choices in terms of reducing spending on services. Certainly, mm-hmm. public statements to that effect. Uh, but I think they both have long term orientation around their brands. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do think that. You know, they, they, they and every large company has, uh, with multiple brands has to make a choice about, you know, how much do you, you leave to the brands to build their own brands and build their own categories? I, I guess from my vantage point, they both have very similar strategies in okay. that regard. Um, again, it, good or bad, what they have done, and as I see it, is that they basically have said, uh, less on external services, please. Right, and then let's get creative about how we use our money. Let's be, you know, let's let's not assume that anything we did last year is what we need to do this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, I think I see more similarities, but that's that's very much from a, trying to look at them from the outside rather than from the inside. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, we're both observers from uh, from external. Yeah. Um, I wanted to also talk about how media has changed. Yeah, and and from my perspective. Uh, media was traditionally, until this century, was something that was very much controlled on a market-by-market basis. And some of that was driven by politics. So it was interesting that things like being able to be a newspaper publisher was almost given as a a benefit that came with responsibilities. And and television licences were things that governments bestowed on individuals, right? And so it would be given within a particular geography. So in the US, in Australia, in Singapore, where we, you know, the government has much bigger influence over media there and other markets. We're now living in an era where there are companies that are calling themselves technology companies that don't really acknowledge those boundaries anymore. And they're not really held accountable as media companies because they say they're not media companies. Now, I'm talking about Facebook and Google sure. and the like. Can I drop this thread a little bit? Yeah. Because, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm indirectly going to push back on this a bit. Um, if you can channel back to when you were a kid or a teenager, can you name a few television programs that you that just stand up top of your mind? Oh, Adam's you... Family, Get Smart, uh, oh, you know, Gilligan's Island. And where did those come from? All from the U.S. Oh, interesting. And that's my point. I don't, you write that it's, a, and I, by the way, as a Canadian... Um, I would have also uh, rattled up things. very similar programs or uh, similarly American programs. It's interesting because uh, there's a different way that you have global presence, mm-hmm. right? And so in the same way that in the... Well, that's the content, though. The content is global. Yes. Except the news. And, the poli- and politicians... And sports. And sports. And, and sports. And politicians are particularly nervous about individuals controlling the news. Yes. Right? Which is, and, that's and different. Then, and then television 
uh, started creating 24-hour news channels. But and this has become incredibly influential yeah. in the politics of a country. So if you're a politician, you want to control or at least have some influence over the messaging that's yeah. actually being sent out about your leadership, policies and style. That's what I'm talking about. Yes, that's entertainment fair. is entertainment. That's the bit where the advertising gets But spent. the foreign influence in any one country... Uh, the cultural has foreign been there. Yeah, the culture, yeah, of course. But when it comes to actually influencing things like politics... Yeah, no, And I'm what just... we've seen is Facebook and Google have been seen and implicated in influencing those things or at least facilitating the influence, yeah. right? Be, but they're not accountable as media companies because they're not media companies, they're technology True. companies. Although wasn't this the concern that certainly Americans and British had about the Murdochs, right? Coming, Absolutely. Coming into, I mean, any time that's happened, it's true. Um, no, I mean, obviously there are there are differences. There's there, there's Globalization has impacted media in different ways over time. I, I'm just trying to make the point that it's influenced markets for decades. Um, I think there is a... It's interesting because you can see it going in two different directions. The fact that a Facebook and a Google uh, are global entities and that the policies they set in Silicon Valley can influence the rest of the world. At the same time, look at what a Netflix is doing with respect to investing in local content in countries mm -hmm. around the world. And I think that it's probably safe to say that as Amazon it continues to invest in what it's doing, it also will have more content. It is an interesting distinction to say that the, for lack of a better word, thoughtlessness that goes into um, uh, you know, automatically generated news curation mm. platforms, and when I yeah. say thoughtlessness, I mean there's just no human, Yeah, um, can produce meaningful and often negative effects, and that's obviously a, um, that's a consequence of thoughtlessness, mm. shall we say. At the same time, globalization is meaning there's more resources to plow into productions that might end up having more local flavor. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. It goes both ways. Mm. I think, though, it's, uh, uh, it's particularly on the political agenda for news media. Yeah. Because, you know, in a democracy, the media is considered the fourth pillar of democracy. Yeah. You know, and it is in Canada. It is in Australia. It is in the US. Used to be. <laughs> Used to be. Has it changed? Well, no. I mean, it's obviously it it it, it still is obviously critical to a functioning democracy. I, um, but I think that the big issue, or one of the big issues, and this is where you know uh, Facebook, Google, and others have just. Uh, had this uh, consequence on uh, societies is because it has print budgets have almost entirely shifted into digital because digital media functionally serves the same goal for the most part. Mm -hmm. If you're a large brand, it satisfies the goal of uh, engagement with a narrowly defined group of, audi of an audience from a large brand perspective. And from a small advertiser perspective, it's a way to you know, spend a thousand dollars at a time, uh, or use a small budget and very micro target, uh, an audience because you have to conserve your resources. Mm. And so, digital satisfies those goals better than print ever did. Mm -hmm. Owners of print never invested, at least initially, did not invest heavily enough into it. NASPERS aside, you could argue in South Africa, um, and uh, at the same time. Um, you know, so their revenue base evaporated from advertising 
And uh, the print never operated as a charity. Uh, so subscription fees were not enough to continue uh, making the business what it was. And so, yeah, it's had negative impact on um, on the willingness of publishers to produce the kind of news they used to. And so we have this, I don't know if it's as much of an issue here as in the U.S., but this term news deserts. No. Right, not news desserts, but news deserts, um, <laughs> you know. So not sweet and, uh, no. and fulfilling. Um, but, yeah, the opposite. Um, uh, but the idea that, you know, it, it, at least in a, in a robust, large market like the U.S., where... You know, it's not like in Australia, you have a small number of cities that are the vast majority of the country. You know what? The U.S. is a much more um, rural country than uh, I think a lot of people appreciate. Mm. And so you have, it would take uh, hundreds of newspapers to get to, you know, the majority of the market probably. And the problem is that for most of them, if any city that used to have two newspapers either has or will end up with at most one, or none. Any city, well, yeah, and any city that had one will have either a couple of days a week or none. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, unfortunately, that's just the reality. It's hard to say what the right answer to that is. It co- coincides with the fact that Facebook and Google uh, have basically absorbed the demand for advertising that would have gone into them. And let's not forget Craigslist. Um, you know, right. cra- it, ate, it ate up the what was called the classified, Absolutely. which was the uh, you know the rivers of gold for these uh, yeah. publications. And Craigslist, um, you know, with with all the whatever intentions that were mostly good, I think, uh, yeah, really, really crushed the newspaper industry mm. um, in I think many countries. So it's it's not exactly a great situation. If there is any good news, is that at least you can see that con- there are consumers who are willing to pay. For premium content, certainly when you look at some of the top tier, uh, you know, uh, national newspapers or nationally oriented ones like the New York Times and the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, I mean, they're doing well in terms of getting people to pay. But interestingly, even like a, a Los Angeles Times, which they've had their ownership issues, is a large market. Apparently, they're really struggling in terms of getting subscriptions. Mm-hmm. So it's almost as if if you're if you're less important at a national level. In a top two or three newspaper, it's um, it's really hard to um, you know continue the journalism. Now, this could speak to where brands could maybe play a role if brands think it's important. I mean, they could be helping make sure the news keeps and in some and in some ways uh, going back to the future, which is uh, you know the soap operas and the things like that to actually play a role of providing the content that people want. Yeah, and it, I mean, it is tricky because, you know, uh, there almost needs to be um, uh, a philanthropic uh, approach because, I mean, and to be clear, there could be audiences who will consume the content, but it's always a delicate balance because there needs to be some separation between, uh, you know, church and state, as we say. As they say, yeah. yeah. It, it's been interesting that one of the things that we're seeing increasingly is this talk about um, brand purpose, you know, and that a lot of organisations have uh, have started, you know, to co-opt either a brand purpose or, yeah, you know, found the brand purpose. That type of thing, how important do you think that is from uh, an investor's point of view or a perception of the value of brands and businesses? I think it can be very important. It's not necessarily the only way to be important. Um, certainly we've seen a lot of, illustrations of where 
brands tying themselves deeply to a cause or a purpose, if we just use that term, mm. uh, has worked really well. Um, but it's not necessarily a given that every brand will have a purpose. Every brand doesn't need to have a purpose to have a successful business. It's kind of like not every product needs to have a brand necessarily, but there are opportunities for brands to have those purposes. And if we think about the idea that, um, you know, as politics, I think in many countries have become um, more polarized, it's hard to imagine this reversing anytime soon. Mm. And so the, the reason I brought it up is when you were talking about the opportunity for brands in, for instance, news, mm-hmm. I've never actually heard of a brand embrace the idea of sh- becoming a source of news or supporting a source of news. Well, I, I guess... Sorry, Apart well, from their category. You know? Right, but where I'm going with this is if there was a brand where the purpose was fostering healthy democracy, mm-hmm. let's just say, uh, sponsoring news products would probably be a good way to do it. Mm. Tying that to the point I was making about, you know, a polarized society, um, because of that, so many different um, aspects of life have become polarized, where you're either for something or against something. Mm. If you're not against it, you're for it. Mm. And all of a sudden, but this pushes the brand. This is what can push a brand down a path towards purpose. So take Nike. Yeah, I was going to say, Nike, is, as soon as you said that, because it, it was willing to polarise the market. The market was already polarised, you could argue. Yeah, but and the, okay, their position in that was they, they were willing needed to take to make a stand. A, but they needed yeah. to make a choice. Yeah. They were either for Colin Kaepernick or not, not or against him. Yeah. If they yeah. didn't support him, there was no middle ground on that one. They had to make a choice. And you go, if you've read what Phil Knight has said about, you know, what he was thinking and why he ultimately... Agreed to make yeah. the campaign. You know, it's like this conversation with was it LeBron James about mm-hmm. how LeBron had to worry about his kids getting pulled over, and Phil Knight realized he would never have to worry about that for his mm-hmm. kids, and he realized. And again, this has been well documented in terms of what they had to go through to get to being okay with it. But if they cut off Kaepernick at that point, in the context of where the United States is as a society, they would necessarily have been against it. Mm. You, they did, you don't have a choice in many instances. And I think that brands are going to find themselves in situations where they're either, if they're not for it, they're against it. Yeah. Now, it's interesting because one of the, uh, around Nike was the share price. You know, mm-hmm. when the story of the campaign broke and the negative press oh. drove the share price down, and then when you got the sort of celebrity and um, endorsement behind it, the price went back up. In fact, went up to record values. I think, unfortunately, investors were very, very <laughs> wrong in how they responded to the concerns immediately. That was like a no-brainer, slam dunk, amazing, uh, you know, consistent uh, with brand choice that they made. Of course, of course. But but I mean, the, the fact is that it's... It, you know, it's interesting. It's not that that doesn't need to be the reason why the brand makes the choice, like that their sales will go up necessarily in the short term. Um, I think that they're going to be, again, if the purpose that the brand is identifying itself with is truly organic to what they believe, hmm. then it's part of long term brand building. I mean, the extreme counter example is, um, you know, if you go to a, a trade show 
And remember, it used to be very common that that there would be um, drawings for iPads, right? Mm. Or drawing, you know, you, you, you enter into a raffle yeah. and you could win an iPad or win an, an iPhone or whatever. I mean, why does everyone do that? Like the iPad wasn't necessarily consistent with what that trade brand represented. Exactly. That's a bad purpose. That's not a yeah. good purpose to identify yourself with. So I think that a brand shouldn't just choose a purpose for its own sake. Um, no, it should come from the core of yeah. what the business is about, which is why I think founders particularly, like Phil Knight, can call that purpose because often the company they've built is infused with their values, whether they like it or not. That's, well, the, that's one of the things about founders. But it, I, I, I'm going to push back on that a yeah. bit. It's not necessarily what the company's culture is necessarily. No, the values. Um, not even no. that. It could be that because it could be that your product can resonate with consumers independent of what your values are. I mean, just look at what's been going on in luxury um, with some of the issues around race and like. Yeah. It's not that they're. Well, Dolce and Gabbana certainly uh, screwed up their Chinese market. I know, market. but the, the point is that the 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 brand and the the marketers have to recognize their consumers who have embraced them, with, independent of what the company's values might be. Okay, but yeah, there's a lot of companies out there that want to be everything to everyone. Yeah, they can't be. But I'm saying that but, every brand can recognize that they are uh, they have a consumer base who believes something, and then you as a brand choose to embrace yeah. it or not. But what I'm saying is I think you're getting cause and effect because oh, have, you got, have you got those customers because they've already picked up on the values that have been delivered fr from the founder start, you know, I'm and the one they've expressed I believe themselves. they are often independent of each okay. other. Okay. And, and I, uh, you know, because I look at things like, you know, so many brands like Disney and, and the like, you know, and, and short-term brands, you know, like um, Aesop, which is a local brand, you know, it's just reeks with the values of the founder because the founder it, it was the happen. one that defined it. I'm saying it's often coincidental. Okay. There was, uh, just on this whole issue, there was, uh, there's a group of 200 CEOs that collected together recently and made the announcement that shareholder value is no longer the number one uh, driver for a, um, a, the performance of a company. Mm -hmm. um, cynically, a fund manager I know said, and then they left after making that announcement and phoned all their fund managers saying, we didn't mean it. <laughs> now... Obviously, that's cynical, but how, what does it take for a company to be able to make a stand where they're not beholden to the investors? It doesn't necessarily take a lot. I mean, a company has to just decide that uh, there are certain things they believe in that ultimately benefit the company in the long run. Mm -hmm. And they can include being conscious of a wide range of stakeholders. Um, you know, there's the concept of the triple bottom line company. Uh, I don't know if many in Australia have bought, onto this, bought into this idea. Salesforce.com is one of the first companies to actually mm. do this. It's done pretty well as a triple bottom line company, mm. not just from a stock and evaluation perspective, but as a business. Yeah. Um, and attracting talent and, and all sorts, well, you know, and all sorts of levers. Yeah. I think that you can look at it very, again, it's... It's kind of like not every product needs a strong brand. It can be helpful to have a strong brand to build a long business, but it needn't be the uh, an order qualifier, let's say. Similarly, being conscious of your stakeholders 
uh, a wide ra wider range than just investors uh, is a practical choice for the vast majority of companies to make because if employees think that the company they're working for is only focused on you know, raising the value, yeah, then okay, some people will sign up for that. They'll take like, well, is this job or the job yeah. in the coal mine that I didn't really want to take? Uh, and maybe coal mines yeah. are lovely to work in, but then then that's fine. But it, it can be a talent differentiator. It can be a differentiator for a consumer. It can be uh, a means to placating regulators ahead of time. Mm. There are all these benefits that come from it. So yeah. I don't think you need to be cynical about it and say it's just business. Yeah. Uh, Brian, we've run out of time. Thank you for uh, for calling by uh, in your busy schedule. Just uh, one last question, and we started off talking about the economy. Um, I just want some personal advice. Should I be getting out of equities and putting it into gold? Mm -hmm.